Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my lovely co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. I also think you are lovely. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. Today, we have a conversation with poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib about his recent collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us, which I enjoyed virtually every minute. I can't think of a minute that I didn't enjoy reading it. I think I agree. But also, I think we have to confess that you might be a little biased because Dan, your husband, recommended it many months ago. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which, which is we... not to take anything away from yeah. Hanif's book, which is excellent. It is excellent, but you're right. I did not discover this on my own. Yes, it was Dan Lopez who, in fact, came on our show and and recommended the book. Oh, that's true also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of great recommendations he has. He does. (laughs) Um, But yes, Hanif's book is great. And as we discuss in the conversation with him, it's this really interesting mix of genre in terms of music criticism, memoir, cultural criticism, really astute observations of how people interact with each other in public spaces and in front of certain artists and in response to certain kinds of music. And yeah, it's a fantastic read. If readers don't read anything other than one essay from that collection, definitely read The Weekend and the Future of Loveless Sex. Oh, yeah. That one is great. It's amazing. It's also, I think, there's a thing about music criticism that I've always avoided because I find that it prides itself on esoteric knowledge. (laughs) And is the last refuge of toxic males. Uh, Yes. Yeah, Yeah. that's so true. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) And and I think if I'm not privy to that knowledge, well, this this kind of writing is not for me, and I just avoid it. You don't really need to know anything about The weekend to enjoy that essay. That's absolutely true. And I also think that's a real strength of the collection and of Hanif as a music critic, because you're right, he avoids a lot of the pitfalls of music criticism, which is basically trying to show how smart you are in like the worst and most annoying kind of way. Yeah, or how many B-sides you've listened to. Exactly. You know what? Nobody cares. Yeah, or trying to describe music in a way that makes it utterly alien to everybody that's reading, where Whereas I feel like Hanif, he's a poet, so he has like actually a very highly stylized way of talking about music, but it's utterly relatable. It is. Yeah. And he himself was just such a lovely guest. Oh, yeah. Everybody will see. Okay. So let's stop teasing the show and get right to it. Let's do it. We're excited to have poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib in the studio with us today. Hanif's poetry and essays have appeared in a number of publications, including Muzzle, Vinyl, Pen American, Fader, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He published his first volume of poetry, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, in June 2016, and his first collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us, which is the subject of our conversation today, in 2017. I read these essays earlier this year, and I've been finagling a way to get Hanif to L.A. and into the studio ever since. His writing is funny, sad, insightful, and deliciously alive all at the same time, and it is my great pleasure to welcome him to the studio. Welcome to the show, Hanif. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so like I said, I have been obsessed with this book ever since my husband started. We were talking about this a little bit before we went on air. 
my husband picked up this book and almost immediately every night as we were going to bed started just reading me random lines from it and they were beautiful and amazing and I was like I love the way that this guy writes about music so I want to talk to you both about your poetry and your music writing and do you see those things as distinct and where do they bleed over I don't see them as separate entities at all personally okay so I oftentimes think that my work is governed less by genre and more by whatever will get me to the logical end of whatever curiosities I'm chasing after. And okay. So I think that the writing for me tells me how it wants to live or my curiosities tell me how they want to be sought out or the path that they want to go down. But I don't separate. I don't think the two are separate, especially because so many of my poems are also using music and pop culture iconography to kind of dig deeper into something. One of the things that I really appreciate about your writing and that I don't find actually that often, both in music criticism or just in friends on music more generally, is that I think you really take pop music seriously, but not by over-intellectualizing it, right? Like not turning this into some, oh yeah, Fergie's me, myself, and I is actually about the mirror (laughs) stage and isn't so clever. But rather, you really think about what is manifestly there. And can you talk a little bit about what it means to take pop music seriously and how you encounter popular music? Yeah, I mean, I don't ever want to over-intellectualize popular culture at all. But I do think if this is something I am going to immerse myself in personally, it's something I'm going to think about in as many ways as possible. And I think a lot of what I'm working through is the various different ways to enter a song, right? Mm -hmm. Because the idea of pop music is that it's popular because it's accessible. So that tells me that there are many doors in. And so to me, taking pop music seriously is what it's asking for, right? It's asking to be consumed by a wide range of people. And so I think the work of the critic, at least in that realm, is to consider all possible ways a song can be entered. And I think that in and of itself is taking the music seriously. I was wondering if you'd be interested in reading a little bit from Ooh, the book. yeah. Sure. I found it very difficult to explain exactly what the experience of reading it was like because... It's sort of like you find conduits to a particular idea via these various different specific routes, but I can't explain how somebody got there without that person actually explaining it themselves. I will read this thing that is about the wrestler Ric Flair. In an early draft of this book, I had written this really long essay about 50 Cent, who was important to me kind of as a marker for shifting of what it meant to market yourself as a rapper in America. Because when 50 Cent came into the world, his whole thing was that, you know, he was this unkillable thing. He'd been shot like nine times and survived, and that was in and of itself fascinating. His survival was his hook. And so I wrote this long thing about 50 Cent's unkillability, if you will, and how that drove the market for his career. You know, it wasn't that interesting. The editor of the book was like, this is less interesting than other essays in the book. And I think that's true. But when I got it back in between the time of like sending it off and getting the edits back, I had read this story about Ric Flair, which is now widely known because they had that documentary about him on ESPN. But before that, few people knew that Ric Flair almost died in a plane crash. And he didn't die and emerged from the plane crash as the wrestler that we knew him as. And I thought about the links between immortality and the kind of theater of wrestling and the theater of rap music. So I'm going to read like the Ric Flair section of this essay called Ric Flair, Best Rapper Alive. I'll start in the second paragraph. Also, this includes a story about a thing that happened in Memphis, Tennessee, and I've never 
read this in Memphis, and I hope too soon, because it's very specific to Memphis. Anyway, look, all I know is that Ali started this shit, bouncing around his opponents and daring them to lay some small violence on him, and what a gift to be both invisible and bright as the sun itself. All I'm saying is that no one knows where Richard Morgan Fleer came from, and that ain't even his birth name, but no one knows that either, not even him. The Tennessee Children's Home Society spent the 40s and 50s illegally removing children from their birth mothers and stripping them of their histories before putting them up for questionable adoptions with desperate parents. And that's how Richard Fleer entered the world. And so it's hard to trace exactly when and how the fire started. But it did start in Memphis, where 3-6 Mafia once played at a nightclub on Lieutenant George W. Lee Avenue after they won an Academy Award for a song about the difficulties associated with being a pimp. And Juicy J had the Academy Award on stage. And the light hit it just right and reflected back into the crowd. And Juicy J said, this right here is from Memphis, Tennessee. And everyone was blinded by the award's immense presence. And then he threw a handful of dollar bills bills in the crowd that arched and then collapsed in the middle of the club floor. And this was in 2006 in the South when everyone was just trying to survive. And so a fight broke out right there in the middle of the club while 3-6 Mafia played their song Stay Fly, which samples the Willie Hutch song Tell Me Why Our Love Has Turned Cold, which is one of those samples that you can't unravel from your memory once you hear it nested deep in the song. And so... While watching a man straddling another man on the ground, preparing to throw a punch, all I could hear was Willie Hutch singing, tell me, tell me, tell me. So what I'm mostly saying is that Memphis is a wild place to fight your way into and then your way out of. And speaking of staying fly... Richard Morgan Fleer was going by Ric Flair in 1975 when the twin-engine Cessna 310 he was in ran out of gas in North Carolina and fell from the sky, hitting the ground at 100 miles per hour. In the picture of the plane after the crash, the entire front window is gone. The plane's front is smashed entirely. The pilot, Joseph Farkas, eventually died from the crash. The crash also paralyzed wrestler Johnny Valentine, one of the biggest wrestlers of the era. When the plane went down, all of the seats were jarred loose, pushing the weight of all the wrestlers onto Valentine at impact. Before the flight began, Ric Flair switched seats with Valentine after being nervous about sitting up front near the pilot. Ric Flair walked away from the flight with a broken back and returned to the ring in six months. Doctors told him that his bones were healed, but there was no telling how they'd hold up under the stress of the ring. Valentine never walked again. Ric Flair never talks about this. But he sure could talk. Sometimes without flying. Sometimes in jets while wearing $8,000 sequin robes in the 1980s. There's almost dying and then there's like truly almost dying. The thing about that is you get a grasp of all that which you cannot take with you and then sometimes you wear it on your body. Ali had the mouth but was always too humble for the gold. Ric Flair walked from the wreckage and became the nature boy. All of the best showmen hid behind their names and their jewelry. The people didn't scream for Antonio Hardy like they did for Big Daddy Kane. The women weren't always running for James Todd Smith but for LL Cool J, Sure. It is more than just a name, I guess. At the start of rap, it was about stepping into a phone booth and coming out as something greater than you were. It was easier to sell a personality than it is now, with every nuance of a person's life splayed in front of us. Rappers can go by their real name these days, with no persona attached, and still be legends. Ric Flair, though, already an invention, walked from a plane crash, reinvented. Thank you. The reason I asked you to do that, I was trying to explain it earlier, but I think hearing it or reading it gives an idea of the really intricate mix of erudition, precision in terms of this vast knowledge that you, I I don't know how 
you have learned all these things? I didn't go on a lot of dates in college. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that explains it. No, that no, totally makes sense. No, it doesn't. But still, and like ways to talk about sort of the larger things that you eventually, it's a remarkable thing, I think, to read. So I'm glad the listeners could hear a piece of it. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about, there's so many things that we can use that as a springboard for, but can we talk a little bit about your process? Sure. Because one thing that I was wondering, there's an incredible amount of detail, for example, in the pieces where you're describing an experience at a concert, which happens in many of them, right. or you are recreating the experience of a concert that you may be watching you know, many years after right, or something right. like that. So what's your process of of noticing? Are you somebody that's always carrying a notebook with you? Or do you really just try to be in the scene and then record everything that you can as soon as you're out? Yeah, I'm a bit of an archivist, though not with any physical paper or pen. I think that I'm, especially at live concerts, I'm so, as I've, or perhaps has always been my ethos, I, I go to a concert mostly for less for what's happening on the stage and more what's happening in the audience. Because yeah. I think the thing about live music is watching how it forces other people to react with each other or what it pushes other people to do in a space that they might not normally be in. I think live music grants people a type of brief and sometimes really generous freedom and to kind of want to archive that, which isn't to say I go to live concerts and don't pay attention to the music because of course I do. Right. But I'm so, I don't imagine the show as being on the stage. I imagine what's coming off of the stage is really just a vehicle for people's like emotional upheaval. And I really kind of want to get the heart of that or get to the heart of that. Can I actually push you a little bit more on that? Because there's something that I find both really resonant to my own experience of being either on a dance floor or mm -hmm. at a concert to the way that you seem to affectively approach the scene of the concert. So what is a concert to you? Because in many ways, or one way, I guess, of reading through your essays a concert is a space of utopian possibility, yeah. right? Of some kind of either transcendence or a feeling of unity. But it also seems that at every turn, that promise is being eroded in some way right. or challenged in some way, sometimes because of your relationship to the audience. So, for example, I find your reflections on the kind of what we might call the white nationalism of a Springsteen's concert. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah really fascinating, both because you're there for the kind of unity and the kind of underdog triumph that Springsteen's songs can evoke, but you're also noticing that something darker also appears to be right. an undercurrent there. So can you just talk a little bit about this ambivalence, maybe, as a word that kept coming up to me when I was reading, or a double-sidedness to the concert? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, for one, personally, will enter a concert with this idea of endless possibility, right? Yeah. Which is why so much of the work in the book is kind of looking at it from all these angles. I believe to see music live, particularly to see music live if you're seeing an artist in a place where they're from, offers a kind of an immense possibility for freedom, whatever that looks like. And I think being in the physical space of a concert is often... Uh, it's kind of where you start at a 10, right? You're like, this is there's endless possibility, and my ability to achieve that endless possibility, if you will, it starts at a 10. Sure. And then as the concert goes on, you have to you take hits, right? And it's a kind of ebb and flow of this thing where you might end up at a 6 or you might end up at a 9. And I kind of want to chart all of that. So I'm interested in the concert because of the possibility that it affords you as a concert goer. But I'm also interested in the concert by the many ways in which 
it takes away that possibility for you or briefly builds it back up. I remember going to see Slater Kinney at Terminal 5 in New York when they came back on their like comeback tour. Mm. And I had this moment, and I've loved Slater Kinney for a long time, but my most like intense love of them was during when, you know, like they broke up and I never saw them. You know, and I never saw them when they like would play small shows and do like the girls to the front shit, you know, the rap right. girl shit. And so I was like, you know, this is going to be my first time seeing a band that is immensely important to me, like politically and musically. And I remember going to see Ter- Slater Kenny at Terminal 5 and there was this scene. I remember going like, this is going to be my 10. This is a concert that I've been like reaching for my whole life. <laughs> and I remember going and there was this moment when they went on stage and like all of the women were being like pushed to the back of the audience by these dudes who were just like shoving their way to the, you know what I mean? And I was like, now I'm at a, like a two, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't feel like, I mean, Terminal 5 is a terrible space, like logistically. It's a weird space. It's a, very it's weird, a space. weird space to get to, yeah. Um, but it was just weird to see, I use that example because it was weird to see this band who had like built their ideals on a very literal like moving women to the front, like physically. And there was no greater metaphor for what was happening in that space or perhaps what was happening in the like greater career ideas of like what Riot Girl became than like, you know, dudes like pushing over women to get to the front of the audience, you know, to see this band of all women. So that's a perfect example of how I think, you know, to go to a concert is to have hope and to sit through a concert is to sometimes have that hope decay a bit. But I also think that if you are lucky in every moment of a concert that you go to, if you are there because you love the musician, you will have something that restores that decay enough for you to walk outside and feel great. I'm curious, what was your relationship to concerts and music when you were little, when you were a child? Did somebody train you to approach live music in this way? Did your parents do this? No, no, no. I think though so. I've so my first concert ever, I was maybe 13 or 12. No, I had to be a teenager. I was 13. And it was on the campus of University of Cincinnati. Who was it? It was most definitely Talib Kweli. It was Black oh, Star. Shit. That's, like a, Black Star. that's a way. Um, <laughs> that's a cool first concert. Yeah, wait. But it got yeah. broken up. They never performed because someone allegedly had a gun. You know what I mean? In that era, I mean, I think in any era, but in that era, like, it was an outdoor concert. You know, it was on a college campus. People weren't checking for shit like that. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, someone says someone has a gun, you start, you know what I mean? And so I think... Were my, you alone? With, with no, friends? I was with my older brothers. Okay. I had two older brothers. My oldest brother went to University of Cincinnati, and I went down with my other brother. And so I remember thinking, like, my entry into the concert space was one that told me I would always have to be vigilant, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went to punk shows. And for me, I always had to be vigilant there. So my entry into the concert space was revolving a lot around threats of violence, whether it was, like, what some would consider, like, mutual, quote-unquote, loving violence or, mm. like, real, actualized, like, guns, you know? Right. And so I think I have always looked at the concert as a space of either danger or healing. And both of those things trigger my observation in different manners. What happened after the gun threat? The concert ended. Yeah, the I was, I, was I fell away. I had never seen, you know, I was hyped. There were some openers, but like while we were waiting for Black Star to come mm-hmm. over, they never, yeah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Hanif Abdul-Rakib, author of They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. This is Kate Wolf. I'm lucky enough to have Francisco Cantu back in the studio with me. Francisco is the author of The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border, which is out now. And he has a book to recommend. What's your book? The last year or so in my reading about the U.S.-Mexico border, I've really gravitated toward poetry. And 
I've come to really think that the best writing that's being done about the border right now is being done by poets. One of these books that I would recommend, it came out just last year, Javier Zamora, Unaccompanied is the name of the book. Mm. Javier crossed the border, I think, as a nine-year-old boy. He writes not only about the experience of, of actually crossing the border, but also about the life in El Salvador that he left behind, the sorts of sociopolitical and family dynamics that ushered him across the border, and also, you know, the experience of carrying that crossing with him throughout the rest of his adult life mm. or the rest of his life becoming an adult. So I think it's a really powerful look at the way the border resonates, the way a crossing can really be carried with someone and also be imposed on someone for a lifetime. And does he write in English or Spanish? Primarily in English, but of course, that's one of the great things about a lot of these poets is the mix between English and Spanish and, and what's possible there. Eduardo Corral is another amazing poet who does a lot of code switching, his poetry between English and Spanish. Natalie Center Zapico, she has a, a book of poetry called The Virging Cities that really looks at El Paso and Sierra Juarez from a, just a very, almost like the domestic sphere of, of what it is to live day-to-day -day life, kind of riven between these, these two different places. Vanessa Angelica Villarreal has a beautiful book that came out last year called Beast Meridian, and it sort of has a, a hyper-focus on the family. And I believe she's a Los Angeles poet as well, actually. Mm, yeah, that sounds familiar. Tell us the name of the initial book that you recommended again. It was Javier Zamora, Unaccompanied. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you. That was Francisco Cantu, author of The Line Becomes a River. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib, author of They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. actually about your journey in punk because you write in a couple of essays about how central punk was to your kind of um, I guess like teenage and young adult identity but there's a there's a moment I forget which essay it is but you describe punk as being this weird experiment in trying to find simultaneously find one's own tribe right. right as a series of outcasts or misfits but then to try to and i believe this is your words the keep the circle open still to allow others to come in and not to once one's found one's group to just close it off and then start policing borders and then you also talk about your gravitation later feeling a certain kind of alienation in punk spaces um, usually around race and racism, and then kind of gravitating more towards Afropunk. Um, right. So can you talk about those kind of threads in your own musical history? Yeah, and Afropunk, I mean, it's different than it was when it first obviously started, but I remember when sure. Afropunk started, it was just like this really freeing joint for me. You know, like it was a time for like, it, there's like a, a thing that I always, me and my other like, black friends who grew up in punk scenes always joke about like being a black kid at the punk concert right. and like some white kids are like you heard of bad brains you know what i mean <laughs> like you heard this one this one black you know uh, you heard this band living color um, and so afropunk was this thing where it was like early on and i still think afropunk is great i'm not dissing it it's really great i haven't been in a couple of years but i know it's still like deeply deeply fulfilling yeah. for a lot of people and i think that's important but for me yeah there's this idea 
Lester Bangs has this really, really great profile on The Clash that came out in 1977. Mm. And it's this sprawling thing where he follows him around for a while. And so much of it, because it's this profile that was written like pre-London Calling, but like after they were kind of ascending, you know, they weren't yet the only band that mattered, but they were getting there. And there was this thing that they were struggling with, this idea of keeping the kids who love them close to them while also like gaining it you know it's like where you're you're like holding on to someone's hand and you feel your fingers like getting looser and looser until they're mm. no longer locking and then they eventually slip away the clash was like struggling with that the same and i i mean i've seen it happen with like fallout boy is a great example i yeah, saw that happen right like, really firsthand about that yeah. um with them where they were like really having a hard time with this idea of like we can't play in basements anymore and we can't see the faces of the people who love us anymore. And, and therefore th- effectively becoming a band that they were not before. Like right. they now morph right. into something else. It was else. something else. And they yeah. were in, in a band that was like never equipped to be this big. You know, I think Pete says it all the time that they were never supposed to be as big as they are. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is before now when they're like an arena rock dad band. Um, <laughs> like before the hiatus, they were never supposed to be that big. I say all of that to say so much of what happens in the interior of punk is also like that, right? Okay. Where you have your people and then you want to open your circle up to more people, but in doing that, you kind of begin to lose those fingers interlocking. And, and I think for me particularly, it was hard for me to define who my people were. Mm-hmm. Um, I was often one of the only black kids on the scene. Mm-hmm. I was often, you know, a couple of my friends in my circle were queer kids and like, op- like out queer kids. And a lot of them were like the only like out queer kids on the scene in the scene was dominated by by straight white dudes, yeah. you know? I mean, and that's just, like, kind of the way that music scene worked uh, in, in my region. I know that in other regions, I mean, we would travel. We would go other places to other punk scenes, and other punk scenes, we would do that because in other punk scenes, it just looked different, you know? Like, okay. the, like, L.A. punk scene was so uh, different than the Midwest punk scene, and, and even Chicago was different than Columbus and, and Dayton. Um, really? And all that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and And so I say all that to say, yeah, I mean, there's there's something very odd about running towards music because you are an outsider and then being an outsider when you're inside of that music scene, right? Yeah. I don't know how to I don't know how to like best describe it other than you're kind of like running into a room where you think you feel safe and then you turn on the light and then there's like monsters everywhere. <laughs> right. So you you talked a little bit about con- constructing an idea of who your people were or figuring out who your people were. Once you had this experience in the punk scene, went to college as you said, earlier. What was your sense or evolving sense of who your people were? I didn't know, I think. Because yeah. I think it had been so shaped by, especially like, you know, my my first year of college, I went to a school called Capital in Columbus, Ohio, where, you know, I was one of like 12 black people on campus. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten so used to kind of being othered in that way, especially, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood with several black people, you know, like mostly yeah. black people. But I had gotten so used to being an outlier through like punk or through soccer. I played soccer in high school and college. All of these things, I was like very distinctly an outlier. And I got so used to that, that by that point, yeah, I was willing to accept any people who wouldn't uh, like distinctly other me, right? Mm-hmm. And that's also dangerous, right? It's a dangerous yeah. because there are ways in which we're othered which you don't know about, and it's a whole thing. Hopefully the, the defining of who my people are is a journey that I'm always on, and a shifting journey, like a journey I'm okay with seeing shift. But at that point, it becomes so hard for me to squint and see through the the many layers of what people could be. Actually, something, is, I don't know if this is a difficult question, but can you talk a little bit about the maybe affective or emotional experience of that kind of feeling? Because something that I noticed in the essays over and over is you seem alone 
Yeah. Right? Like you go to these concerts, there's so many people. Even if it's a small one, you're sort of packed in with large numbers of people all sort of interacting with the same thing. I think as a reader, you still seem sort of apart. Yeah. And you do seem like there's a little bit of loneliness there. Right. Maybe. So what is that like? What's that emotional experience like for you? For me, I think I am thankful for the fact that I have learned to trust my loneliness. Hmm. I've learned to trust loneliness as a, and I know this is going to sound miserable perhaps, but I've learned to trust loneliness as a companion to, you know, like I think that like when you grow up and kind of feel like, which is to say I'm lonely now, I'm very like fulfilled in several ways, but in my moments of loneliness, and I I do think that there's, and perhaps it's just like a matter of a slight turn of the head, but I do Mm -hmm. think that there is a difference between the feeling of loneliness and the concept of being alone, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I am constantly trying to make myself aware of that. I don't imagine myself as alone. And, you know, and this is like perhaps dark, but I, you know, I've lost a lot of friends to suicide. And, and, and so I think the way I don't imagine myself as alone is because I knew, I know that if I needed someone to remind me of why I, why I should stay alive, I would have a person to call. Mm-hmm. Right. Loneliness as it, as a, it's an emotional state though, I have found a comfort in because it is, it was in my moments of emotional loneliness during my early adult teenage years when I learned to trust my instincts and when Mm -hmm. I learned to trust myself throughout without being pushed through the lens of what someone else imagined me to be because so much of those years for me were people fashioning me into something that I did not necessarily ask for or desire right and so in my moments of loneliness I was able to build my own mythology Mm -hmm. Um, and so therefore I do think that my, because a lot of these essays are romanticizing or mythologizing a, a space or a time, and I probably do that best work when I am in that kind of space of isolation. Makes um, sense. Speaking of these kind of, I guess we would call them like the kind of bad feelings, or well, they don't have to be bad, but the kind of like the loneliness, um, dejection, and and that sort of thing. You do write at several points in the book about how. You are writing in the wake of 2016, right? right? So, and you're writing about as none of us need to relive that right now, but how awful that year was and the ongoing effects of it. So, I am wondering a little bit since this book does seem to be kind of a reflection on not only all the various things that you're talking about in there, but on 2016 as a sensorium for also exploring a lot of those things. Where are you now in terms of how you're facing the present? I don't think, you know, I still think stuff's pretty bad. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm not, I mean, I think, I'm not yeah, trying no, to no, have no, like a you, positive yeah. spin here. It would be amazing like, if you're like, I'm feeling a lot better. I feel um, emotionally... I have equipped myself to emotionally deal with all of this better. Yes. Um, okay. But I, I joked recently that from January 2017, it's just felt like a one long month from like January yes. 2017 yeah. to present, like yeah. one long month with just like varying weather. Um, and I, I can't like. And it's all hurricanes. And it's all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know <laughs> what I mean? And I, I can't shake this feeling. I'm just like, I consistently always, and it's, we're in like April of 2018 and I I still have to be like what year like is this 2018 I always say like last year when I mean 20 when I mean 20 I'm thinking about something in 2016 and I go oh last year people are like no it's two years ago but you know what I've thought about and what I've been really reveling in I have found ways to kind of build my own small countries of escape Mm -hmm. right 
I was not equipped to do that, I think, in 2017. And then perhaps halfway through, I decided that, you know, there are so many people I love who are fighting and surviving. And, yeah. and anytime we celebrate each other, we are putting down another peg in a country that is ours and ours alone. And I can run into, so, so me calling a friend on the phone and laughing at something on the internet is a country. And me, you know, cooking a bad breakfast for my partner is a country. And, and me going on a run and not dying in the middle of it is a country. And, you know, me watching basketball, which I'm happy about now because the Timberwolves made the playoffs last night, is a country. <laughs> and all these things are countries that help me live in the larger actual country I live in a little, it makes it a little smoother. And so I'm thinking a lot now about brief escapes that fuel the larger fight. Yeah. I like that a lot. As one way to wrap up, I challenge any reader to um, read They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us and not immediately come up with a list of artists and performers that I'm like, oh, I want to hear Hanif's take on this, right? Yeah. So for me, yeah, I kept being like, oh, what does he think about Sean Mendez? What does he think I about I love Sean Mendez. Oh, okay. uh, see, see, okay, so, sorry. I'm, Let's get into it. You might not no, be no. asking me any Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Let's do I it. like Sean Mendez. I like Sean Mendez. He's like 12, and he's like very, yeah. you know, I, well, Sean Mendez now is like whatever. But I am yeah. interested in the Sean Mendez. I think his career arc is like very, uh, this is going to sound bad, but I think his career is arcing towards that, like, when John Mayer had that, like, blues period that was actually really fruitful, yeah. like, continuum yeah, 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 and all yeah. that shit. I think Sean, May Sean Mendez is arcing towards that. Like, I think he's doing, I think his career arc looks like John Mayer's, uh, hopefully without all the problematic, like, stuff. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But, like, where he just has these, like, very basic pop guitar things. But he's, like, a skilled guitar player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's has, I don't know if he has the same blues chops, but he's a very skilled guitar player, and he's young. Um, Which can get lost in his kind of otherwise bubblegum aesthetic, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's his, I mean, yeah, he came to, to us via, like, YouTube and all that. But I think he has a blues era in him somewhere. I think she is somewhat terrifying, but I think her terrifying. I mean, she is a skilled musician, but I think Sia's aesthetic is super terrifying and, and delightfully terrifying. I, Wait, the, how so? That's interesting to me. So the only, this is like maybe funny or weird, but the only song I really love on Life of Pablo, the last Kanye album, is not even a song. It's just Sia's part on Wolves. Mm. And <laughs> I remember when, there are two things. I remember when um, the video for Wolves came out. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's like this black and white video. It's all black and white and like dark. And Sia's part, <laughs> she is wearing all black and is holding like a microphone with black gloves and lightning keeps flashing. So it's like all black and white with except the, the occasional burst of light. And it's when her hair was like half black and half white. Oh, really? So literally all you see is like a shock of white hair in like the, the, the whites of her eyes every now and then, and it's horrifying. <laughs> but it's like really delightful. And then when he did on, when he did Wolves on SNL, they did that thing where like they he like crawled on the stage and Vic Mensa and Sia crawled out behind him. And all you see, so you see like Vince, Vic Mensa crawling out and you see this like giant blob of white hair just like slowly <laughs> moving along. And I was like, I'm gonna have nightmares about this. So I think she is pretty terrifying, but also really great, like very skilled. You know, it's very funny. Um, I don't know. Well, I think it's really funny. But um, for a while, I was really seeing a lot of Sia yeah. around town. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, wait, you're but, here? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And she would, but she would be doing really, I mean, like if she was trying to be normal, it was like she was like really exceeding her goal. Like she was like getting frozen yogurt. She was like having brunch, oh. and yeah, every time I, I saw her, she was like yeah. wearing socks, um, <laughs> getting coffee. That's what yeah. I have friends and so, at breathing, <laughs> breathing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like every ever since then, I've been like, oh, she's just like 
She's just like a frozen yogurt lady. Yeah, she's. Um, I mean, yeah, with I like a weird stage presence. Some very weird aesthetics. I, but I, I like Sia. I listened to a Sia song. My my like last quarter mile of my runs. I, I run a lot, and the last quarter mile song is always Sia's "The Greatest." It's a very like yeah. really? powers yeah. you through the end of a run song. Wait, what's your fr- what what's your first? song so does it change it changes but my running playlist it my running playlist ends the same way all the time but the running playlist my running playlist is 622 songs because i just wow. think of songs for the past like five years mm-hmm. if i think of a song i just add it to the playlist over the course of five same. years and yeah. so i just same, and then yeah. it goes on shuffle so it's like you know that which leads to some weird things where it's like I was running like two months ago and I'd forgotten that Chester Bennington was dead and Lincoln Park's Bleed It Out came on the running playlist and I was like, oh, I'm going to cry on the treadmill because <laughs> I forgot all about this. And so it leads to some weird things. And I don't, you know, I put that song in there probably like four and a half years ago, you yeah. know, forgot and hadn't heard it ever. There are songs on my running playlist I'll probably never hear because mm-hmm. there's so many and I only run for like 20 songs worth of you know, music a day. Right. So, I don't know. <laughs> so, okay, so all of this was a long way of teeing up the final question that I had for you, which yes. is about what do you think about the contemporary music scene? Because there's a couple of, th- I know that's an impossibly broad question, but um, there's some things that I'm super fascinated by. So both by the artists that we've talked about and their various emotional valences, but also the way in which we're in this kind of, um, not remix zone, but we're, all kinds of identities are like constantly crashing into one another and experiences. I mean, I was thinking just the other day, my husband was playing um, Cardi B's Bodak Yellow, but it's the Spanish language version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which then reminded me that I was like, oh yeah, actually, you know, as much as you try to pin any of these artists down into one thing or one box or one lane, right? They're always kind of moving across various lanes, especially now. And like somebody like Cardi B is, I mean, she's obviously super ascendant right now and everybody's listening to the album on repeat. But I just wonder, what do you think about hybridity and commodification and all of that stuff in contemporary music? So I think that my big thing is that I think, and I, I was talking about this earlier, and I think when I say it, people think I'm losing my mind. I think in 10 years, there will be no such thing as genre. I, I think that's right. And I think yeah. I think we're getting there. You know, you see those like ridiculous, those ridiculous memes with like children where people are thinking like, you know, mixed race children are going to, biracial children are going to save the world or multicultural right. children right, are going right, to save right, the world. Right. Where it's like, in 20 years, this is what a kid will look like. And it's like, that's probably not true. But right. <laughs> I do think that in like 10, 15 years, we, everything, everything as we know it, at least we're talking, if we're talking along the popular music landscape, sure. whatever that means, everything we know as we know it is just bowing towards pop. And mm-hmm. so pop- Which is changing what pop is. Which is, is changing what pop is, yeah. right? Pop is broadening because- it's like when something can no longer, when a like company can no longer support itself and it dissolves into a larger company. R and B could, contemporary R and B could no longer support itself as it stood, so it kind of dissolved into pop music, which therefore broadened the pop landscape, right? You know, country music has long been bowing to pop, at least popular country music. But that yeah. that also is to say that there's a lot of there's a lot of work in these genres that is standing out, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. still like country music that is not bowing to pop that is still very much enjoyable for me sure. in, in R&B music. I think all of those things will always be there, but I think the like the the icing of this cake, right? The icing of the contemporary music cake will always be have a flavor of pop music with it, no matter what is what the actual cake is, you know what I mean? Like rap is bowing towards pop and has been for a long time. And, yeah. Um I don't listen to the radio, so I don't really know what what how radio is reacting to this. Okay. Um but, it's an odd experience. But I can imagine. I mean, when I came up, there were distinct radio stations, right? Like mm-hmm. very distinct radio stations. Genre distinct. Very genre yeah. distinct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now it's kind of just like a. My partner just got um, 
Sirius radio in her car and was listening to like the hits channel. And so, <laughs> but I think that is interesting where we're, or yeah. we've gone away from genre distinction and now it's just like, is this a hit or is this not a hit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the language of the hit has always been a very popular music, pop music language, right? Um, the ways in which we define a hit in American music has always trended towards any level of pop music, right? Yeah. Um, melodically or structurally, or um, a hit is something that fits well in the mouth of many people, all of those things. And I think that that is where music is going, right? It's awesome. We've been speaking with Hanif Abdul-Rakib, author of They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks for letting me hang out. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.